Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, January 16th, 2018, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. Historian Andrew Roberts examines the start of Winston Churchill's tenure as British Prime Minister in May of 1940. And now, enjoy the podcast. In one of the great coincidences of history, on the same day that Adolf Hitler unleashed Blitzkrieg on the West on, at dawn on Saturday, the 10th of May, 1940. Winston Churchill was summoned to Buckingham Palace to form a government um, by King George VI. It was a coincidence because he had already been chosen to be the person if uh, Chamberlain fell. So uh, he went there, and eight years later, he wrote in his war memoirs, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is so important. This concept of destiny is so important to uh, Winston Churchill and ultimately to us that I thought I would start this lecture series of 10 lectures because if you understand this about Churchill, everything else fits into place. And uh, you're not to worry, though. We have three years of these lectures. Um, <laughs> there, will, there will be an awful lot of other things that we'll be talking about. When Lou Lerman and I um, spent five minutes trying to think up a list of subjects, we immediately came up with 20. Um, so, uh, so think of this as a marathon rather than a sprint, I think is probably... In his 90 years, Churchill was uh, a statesman, sportsman artist, orator, historian, parliamentarian, bricklayer, essayist, gambler, soldier, war correspondent, newspaper editor, butterfly collector, big game hunter, legal plaintiff, novelist, and loving husband and father. But perhaps most of all, he was a man of destiny, primarily because he believed himself to be one. Whether you or I philosophically believe such a thing as destiny exists is immaterial, He did, and he therefore carried himself in such a way that he did not, in his phrase, fall below the level of events. Churchill didn't mention his destiny at the time of his appointment as Prime Minister. Her Majesty the Queen has graciously allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to be permitted to read the full, unexpurgated diaries of her father, her late father, King George VI. And the King lunched with his Prime Minister every Tuesday of the war, alone, They served themselves from a side table so that servants didn't have to be present. And afterwards, the king noted down what Churchill told him, providing us with a wonderful new historical source. Churchill trusted the king implicitly and spoke to him openly about whatever was most on his mind, knowing that the king was the one person in public life who wasn't after his job. He told him about the ultra-decrypts of the German Enigma machines, for example. And the king noted of that fateful evening on the 10th of May, 1940, that Churchill, quote, was full of fire and determination to carry out the duties of prime minister. 
Then, in the car coming back from Buckingham Palace, Walter Thompson, Churchill's bodyguard, a strong, tall detective inspector uh, who'd been with Churchill on and off for about 20 years, over 20 years, congratulated him and said the task was enormous. God alone knows how great it is, the new Prime Minister replied. All I hope is that it is not too late. The third person Churchill spoke to of the job um, at the time was his wife Clementine, to whom he said the very next morning, there's only one man who can turn me out, and that is Hitler. Years later, he also told his doctor, I felt I could discipline the bloody business at last. I had no feeling of personal inadequacy or anything of that sort. At this point, it's worth pointing out, by the way, that Churchill only kissed hands in a figurative constitutional uh, sense. Please don't believe everything that you see in The Crown, um, (laughs) where the six-foot-five John Lithgow um, kisses the Queen's hand whenever he sees her, um, uh, which the five-foot-six Winston Churchill did not. Um, (laughs) In fact, if you take away anything from this lecture series, please, it should be not to believe anything uh, in the crown. (laughs) Uh, Now, we're going to play you a a, a short clip of the words that Churchill used uh, on telling the House of Commons about his new government three days after he kissed hands with the king. Take it away. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, What is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aidable. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. The reasons that Churchill had no feeling of personal inadequacy was that he was a Victorian aristocrat born when the British upper classes were at the apex of the largest empire the world has ever seen. And in his background, education and military career, he genuinely felt no reason to feel inadequate about anything. He'd been born in the grandest palace in England, not excluding the royal ones, Uh, was not the dunce he made himself out to be in his autobiography, My Early Life, and he was the grandson of a duke. Furthermore, he'd already held several of the great offices of state and knew that he could fill the premiership too, a post he had wanted ever since he entered politics over four decades earlier. 
He had been the youngest Home Secretary in 70 years, the first Lord of the Admiralty who had mobilised the Royal Navy at the outbreak of the Great War, Uh, Minister of Munitions when it employed two and a half million people. Um, It was easily the largest employer in the empire, and a Chancellor of the Exchequer who had delivered no fewer than five annual budgets. He was 65 when he became Prime Minister, three years older than the age that civil servants retired, and had delivered well over a thousand speeches. As he also put it in his war memoirs, I knew, I thought I knew a great deal about it, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. Before Churchill even won his seat in Parliament, aged 25, he'd already fought in four wars, published five books, written 215 newspaper and magazine articles, participated in the greatest cavalry charge in half a century, and made a daring escape from a prisoner of war camp. Uh, One contemporary profile of him said, at 25 he had fought in more continents than any soldier in history save Napoleon, and seen as many campaigns as any living general. Yet the other reason, indeed the key reason, that Churchill felt he could discipline the bloody business at last was, and had no feeling of personal inadequacy, was because he always felt that he was walking with destiny. And this was as much true in the terrible mistakes and errors and disasters of his life, much of which were self-inflicted, as in his triumphs and successes. When you make some great mistake, he wrote in his autobiography, My Early Life, it may very easily serve you better than the best advised decision. Life is a whole, and luck is a whole, and no part of them can be separated from the rest. To Clementine, writing from the trenches of World War I at the lowest point of his life, after the catastrophe of the Dardanelles, when he had proposed a military campaign in Turkey that had failed miserably, he wrote one of the most profound sentences of his prodigious output of six million published words, and eight million spoken ones uh, as well, ladies and gentlemen, Um, when he said, I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. One of the frustrations about trying to analyse Winston Churchill is that he always analysed himself better. We admire Churchill for his prescience, although he got the Dardanelles um, disastrously wrong. But here's a vision of the future that he had. Quote, I can see vast changes coming over a now peaceful world, he predicted to his friend Merland Evans. Great upheavals, terrible struggles... Wars such as one cannot imagine. And I tell you, London will be in danger. London will be attacked, and I shall be very prominent in the defence of London. I see into the future. This country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion, by which I means I do not know. But I tell you, I shall be in command of the defences of London, and I shall save London and England from disaster. Dreams of the future are blurred, but the main objective is clear. I repeat, London will be in danger, and in the high position I shall occupy, it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if he had said this in 1931, one would have been impressed with his prescience as Hitler only came to power in 1933. If he'd said it in 1921, 
we might also have been impressed by the fact that he'd seen the Versailles Treaty would not bring lasting peace only two years after it was signed. Such a prediction might have been possible in 1911, uh, before the outbreak of the Great War, though it would have seemed extraordinary in 1901, when the British Empire was at its height. Ladies and gentlemen, Churchill said those words in 1891, when he was only 16 years old. (laughs) He had mapped out precisely his destiny as a teenager and did not deviate from it until age 65 and considered by many, including Adolf Hitler, as a hopeless has-been. He came to power and walked with precisely the destiny that he had prescribed for himself half a century earlier. It's long been assumed that it was his near-death experiences, about which I'll be lecturing here on Thursday, April the 19th, that made Churchill so certain that his destiny would protect him until such time as he could save London and England. Even if you strip out those very frequent near-death experiences from warfare when he deliberately put himself in harm's way, such as on the no fewer than 30 occasions when he ventured out into no-man's land in the trenches of the Great War, there were any number of other times when it made it unlikely that he would live long enough to fulfil his destiny. He was born two months premature. He had three car crashes, including a very serious one on 5th and 76th, um, but also two plane crashes. He was concussed for four days after jumping 30 foot off a bridge, was staying in a house that burnt to the ground in the middle of the night, very nearly drowned in Lake Geneva, was stabbed as a schoolboy, and had four serious bouts of pneumonia, one that very nearly killed him as a child, and three serious ones as an adult, as well as a series of heart attacks. Um, in retrospect, the, uh, the lack of an assassination attempt on Churchill seems to be a curious oversight um, <laughs> in an otherwise uh, full life. Um, he complained to Clementine, actually, that he couldn't uh, find life assurance, um, which, uh, it, on this occasion, it's hard to sympathise with him. Sometimes, when fortune scowls most spitefully, Churchill wrote, she is preparing her most dazzling gifts. When he wrenched his shoulder, jumping off the boat that took him to his first overseas posting in India, an injury that stayed with him for many years, uh, it meant that he had to use his Mauser revolver rather than a sword during the charge of the 21st Lancers at the Battle of Omdurman two years later. This allowed him to shoot four dervishes at point-blank range, including one who was trying to chop at the hamstrings of his horse with his scimitar. Being unhorsed in that melee, where the lancers were outnumbered by ten to one, meant almost certain death. Um, Indeed, the regiment suffered almost 25% casualties. It was a classic example of fortune seeming to scowl at Churchill, while in fact she was taking care of him. It was partly Churchill's time actually on the Afghan-Pakistan border in 1896 and 1897 and in the Sudan in 1898, which had brought him up close to militant Islamic fundamentalism that allowed him to spot the fanatical nature of Nazism that so many of his fellow politicians missed in the 1930s. Neville Chamberlain met Adolf Hitler three times, yet he utterly failed to notice the cold fanaticism of the Nazis and their creed, just seeing the Fuhrer in class terms as the commonest little dog you ever saw. 
Churchill never met Hitler, but having seen fanaticism in action earlier in his life and remembering friends who had been butchered by the Talib and the dervish tribesmen, he immediately spotted the same phenomenon in the Nazis. The other essential feature in this was Churchill's philo-Semitism. One of the only good things he inherited from his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was that he was brought up to like, admire and socialise with Jews. Attitudes that were very different and unusual, um, but very different from the majority of the upper-class Victorians of his youth. Churchill, therefore, had an early warning mechanism that allowed him to place Hitler very early on as one of the malevolent forces on the world scene. Clement Attlee said that in the House of Commons before the war, Churchill told him in tears about the plight of the Jews in Nazi Germany. This was emphatically not the stance of most British politicians, left or right, in the House of Commons at the time. Why is your chief so violent about the Jews? Hitler asked Hitler, uh, sorry, Churchill asked Hitler's publicist, Putzi Hampstegel, when there was a chance of his meeting Hitler in Munich in 1932. What is the sense of being against a man simply because of his birth? How can any man help how he was born? Unsurprisingly, the meeting did not take place. Although Churchill believed in an almighty... The role of the supreme being in Churchill's theology seems to have been primarily to look after the safety of Winston Churchill. (laughs) Churchill did not believe Jesus Christ was divine, although he did think of him as a wise rabbi who gave mankind a superb system of ethics. In that sense, Churchill's belief system, which he himself called the religion of healthy-mindedness, was theologically a lot closer to Judaism, than to the Anglican church into which he was born. He joked that he saw his relationship to the Church of England as that of a flying buttress, um, in that he supported it, but from the outside. (laughs) His belief system, therefore, tended to augment and support his sense of a personal destiny. Other than his philo-Semitism, which was to turn into fully-fledged Zionism, Churchill received little that was commendable or worthwhile from his father, who despised him and undercut him at every opportunity. Indeed, the more his father was aloof and disdainful towards uh, Winston Churchill, the more he seems to have worshipped him. Lord Randolph's only other service to his son was to die at the age of 45, when Churchill was only 20, allowing him to escape the stultifying influence of this mercurial, quick-witted, intellectually brilliant, unstable, controlling, and at times deeply unpleasant man. In a sense, Winston Churchill was striving to impress the shade of his missing father all his life, despite having received little from him but irritation and occasionally contempt. Yet Churchill was to adopt his father's Tory Democrat politics, many of his mannerisms, and take on several of his enmities. He wrote his father's biography in two volumes, named his only son Randolph, and fantasised about meeting his father in a beautifully written essay entitled The Dream. When Churchill was finally financially solvent, which did not happen until he was 73 years old, Uh, he bought racehorses and dressed the jockeys in his father's chocolate and pink racing colours. Solitary trees, if they grow at all, grow strong, Churchill wrote in his book The River War. And a boy deprived of his father's care often develops, if he escapes the perils of youth, an independence and vigour of thought uh, which may restore in afterlife the heavy loss of early days. 
Now, Churchill was writing of the Sudanese spiritual leader, the Mahdi, in those words, but like an extraordinary amount of his writing and speeches, and even his eulogies for his friends, there was a huge amount of self-reference there too. I mentioned how Churchill was in tears when he spoke to Attlee about the fate of the German Jews, but then he was extraordinarily lachrymose. Tears welled up easily in his eyes. Indeed, he could use his lachrymosity as a political weapon on occasion, on top of those occasions when he was genuinely overwhelmed with emotion, as he was with regard to the Jews. I've identified no fewer than 50 times when Churchill cried in public during the Second World War. I blub an awful lot, you know, he told Anthony Montague Brown, his last private secretary. You have to get used to it. Anthony, who I knew well, recalled that Churchill's tears would usually be induced by, quote, tales of heroism, a noble dog struggling through the snow um, <laughs> to his master would inspire tears. It was touching. I found it perfectly acceptable. Churchill considered his lachrymosity to be almost a medical condition, telling his doctor that he dated it to his defeat by 43 votes in the St George's Westminster by-election of 1924. Yet there were plenty of times that he cried before that. I think a better diagnosis was that he was an emotional, sentimental Regency aristocrat in a way that predated the Victorian stiff upper lip. Every admiral carrying Horatio Nelson's coffin at St Paul's Cathedral in 1806, for example, was in tears. Another classic example of fortune scowling at Churchill, uh, when in fact she was preparing a dazzling gift, came when he arrived in South Africa in October 1899 and tried to get into the town of Ladysmith. He was unable to do this because by then the Boers had cut the rail link on the Tugela River and were about to lay siege to the town. Once again, Churchill was fortunate in his misfortune because he got into Ladyship, sorry, had he got into Ladysmith, he would have been incarcerated there until its relief three months later, instead of following the path that was to make him famous to the ambush train and his subsequent escape. By the way, the casualty rate for the British soldiers in that train ambush was 34%, uh, even higher than at Omdurman. Churchill also found it again and again um, the case in politics that destiny, luck, chance, fate or providence, he tended to use them interchangeably when writing about them, which he did a lot, worked in his favour again, even when they seemed to be working against him. He only lost the by-election at Oldham in 1899 by a whisker. Had there been a mere 2% swing to the Liberals, Churchill would have entered the House of Commons, so he wouldn't have gone to South Africa and had the opportunity for making not just a local or national reputation for himself, but a truly international one only five months later. Similarly, Churchill failed to get elected as national liberal free trader uh, for Leicester West in the general election of 1923. Being out of Parliament that year and thus not beholden to the liberal whip allowed him to move towards the Conservatives. And the following year, he became a Tory Chancellor of the Exchequer. Interestingly, his first thought on his appointment was not about the economy or tariffs or taxes, but that he could now wear the same robes that his father had worn when he had been Chancellor of the Exchequer. In March 1931, Churchill wrote an article in the Strand magazine entitled A Second Choice about all the twists his life had uh, taken and how it might have gone otherwise. Quote, if we look back on our past life, we shall see that one of the most 
one of its most usual experiences is that we have been helped by our mistakes and injured by our most sagacious decisions. Although he wasn't to know it for several years, he was about to be helped enormously by his decision to resign from the shadow cabinet over India, Indian self-government, saving him from being responsible for any of the decisions regarding the appeasement of Germany. He concluded in that article, quote, Let us reconcile ourselves to the mysterious rhythm of our destinies, such as they must be in this world of space and time. Let us treasure our joys, but not bewail our sorrows. The glory of light cannot exist without its shadows. Life is a whole, and good and ill must be accepted together. The journey has been enjoyable and well worth making once. Two months after Adolf Hitler came to power in January 1933, Churchill told the Society of St. George, it may well be that the most glorious chapters of our history are yet to be written. We ought to rejoice at the responsibilities which destiny has honoured us and be proud that we are guardians of our country in an age when its life is at stake. Hitler had by that stage not invaded anywhere and wouldn't for nearly three years, but Churchill was already seeing his own and his country's destiny in opposing the Nazis. And the historian in him led him often to liken Britain's role in his own time to that of Elizabeth I at the time of the Spanish Armada, his great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, fighting Louis XIV, Nelson and Wellington opposing Napoleon's ambitions, and of course stopping the Kaiser from establishing hegemony over Europe earlier in the 20th century. In the 1935 general election, the national government, which Churchill supported, won a landslide victory, and Churchill hoped to be given a ministerial job. But Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister, did not call. At the time, Churchill was profoundly disappointed, but later he understood how good it was not to have been in a government that was refusing to rearm adequately. Now I can see how lucky I was, he later wrote, over me beat the invisible wings. Not simply invisible wings, but the invisible wings of an angel, presumably deputed to ensure that Churchill reached his ultimate destiny. Although Churchill was again profoundly disappointed when, soon afterwards, a minor figure named Sir Thomas Inskip was appointed as Minister for the Coordination of Defence instead of him, he told Clementine, I do not mean to break my heart whatever happens, destiny plays her part. Yet he rightly saw it as another missed opportunity to send Hitler an unmistakable message about British resolve. As Britain stumbled towards the humiliation of the Munich debacle, Churchill wrote an article which said that, quote, the shores of history are strewn with the wrecks of empires. They perished because they were found unworthy. We would court and deserve the same fate if, in the coming years, we so denied our destiny and our duty. For him, therefore... Destiny and duty were one and the same thing. Churchill's denunciation of Munich, the only front-ranked conservative politician to do so besides Alfred Duff Cooper and to a much lesser extent Anthony Eden, meant that he was the chief beneficiary when Hitler ripped up all his promises and marched into Prague in March 1939. By 1939, Churchill was in that penumbra between old statesmen and elder statesmen. But he had not given up his hopes for the premiership, however unlikely it must have seemed, considering his following in the Commons by then could be counted on fewer than the fingers of one hand. By that stage, even Clementine no longer believed that he could possibly become Prime Minister. But he, crucially, never gave up hope. 
Attempts were made in early 1939 by his own party to deselect Churchill from the constituency of Epping. A young man called Colin Thornton Kemsley worked tirelessly attempting to destroy Churchill's political um, career. The Chigwell branch of the Constituency Association had voted by 14 members to four against Churchill and the Loughton branch by 31 to 14. These were, of course, tiny numbers in the context of the world historical events that would have ensued had Churchill not been available to take public office in the opening stages of the Second World War. Had Thornton Kemsley succeeded in deselecting Churchill at Epping. No other winnable Conservative constituency would have taken on Churchill after Munich, and he'd have been very unlikely to win as an independent Conservative in that political environment either. Almost any other politician faced with a revolt in his constituency while a general election was pending would have made compromises or toned down his speeches in order to head off a potentially disastrous outcome. What Churchill did was to go straight to Thornton Kemsley's own branch of Chigwell and make a speech in which he told them that he did not withdraw a single word of his denunciation of the Munich Agreement. Indeed, quote, I read it again only this afternoon and was astonished to find out how true it had all come. When Hitler occupied the rump of Czechoslovakia only days later, opposition to Churchill ceased in his constituency, but for a moment it had been touch and go over whether he could survive in Parliament. By 1939, however, Churchill was surrounded by ghosts and did not feel himself beholden to political pygmies like Thornton Kemsley, but instead to the memory of the friends of his youth, very many of whom were dead. The South South African War accounted for a large population, not only of my friends, but of my company. Churchill was to write of his Sandhurst Cadet Company in my early life, and the Great War killed almost all the others. His greatest friend at Harrow had been Jack Milbank, who had won the Victoria Cross in the Boer War, but had died, in Churchill's words, leading a forlorn attack in the awful Battle of Suvla Bay. That was on the Gallipoli Peninsula, the campaign that sprung from the reverses in the Dardanelles. Major Cecil Grimshaw, uh, Churchill's cellmate in Pretoria, in the prisoner of war camp there, who had raised the Union flag while Churchill liberated the uh, prison, was killed at Cape Helles, also in Gallipoli. In Churchill's house at Harrow had been John Morgan, who was killed at Lullababa in Gallipoli. Indeed, of the 67 boys in his 1892 house photograph at school, a total of 41 had served in either the Boer War or the Great War, or both, and 11 were dead by 1918. Lady Diana Cooper told her son, my friend John Julius Norwich, that by the end of 1916... Every single man she had ever danced with was dead. People who had fought in the the trenches, like Churchill, Alfred Duff Cooper, Anthony Eden and Harold Macmillan, did not feel beholden to opinion polls and focus groups uh, or even the media or party apparatchiks. They followed what they thought of as their duty. And in Churchill's case, his destiny too which was to stay true to their dead friend's sacrifice in denying the Germans control over the continent of Europe. During the wilderness years, when he was out of office in the 1930s, Churchill had also lost his great friends F.E. Smith, aged 58, Lawrence of Arabia, aged 46, Ralph Wigram, also aged 46, and his cousin and political supporter Freddie Guest, um, age 61, on top of all of those other friends who had died earlier. So when Churchill, after Munich, wrote to his friend Lord Craigoven, 
who uh, had also been captured by the Boers and was Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, he undoubtedly meant it when he said, quote, you are one of the few who have it in their power to bestow judgments which I respect. For by the dawn of 1939, the year the Second World War broke out, it's always a good idea to remind Americans of that, um, the aristocrat in Churchill had narrowed down the number of people whose opinion he gave a damn about to relatively few. It was a prerequisite for continuing on the way, on his way, in the face of so many who opposed him. He cared more for the approval of the shades of his dead father and dead friends than for what he had contemptuously described in the Munich debate as currents of opinion, however swift and violent they may be. Even some of the British defeats early and on in the Second World War can be put down as being a case of fortune seeming to scowl, scowl spitefully even though she was preparing a dazzling gift. The most dazzling gift of World War II, the thing that killed 80% of all the Germans who died in battle during that conflict, was Hitler's invasion of Russia in June 1941. Operation Barbarossa could have taken place six weeks earlier, but Churchill had supported the Yugoslavian uprising in late March and sent an expeditionary force to Greece. Now, the Greeks were forced to capitulate within three weeks. Yet, although Churchill's support for the Yugoslavian coup and Greek intervention looked like fiascos at the time, later on it seemed inspired, though not for any reason to do with British arms. By August 1941, Churchill was telling his private secretary, Jock Colville, that the Yugoslav coup might well have played a vital part in the war, in that it caused Hitler to bring back his panzer divisions from the north and postponed for six weeks the attack on Russia. He was supported in this assertion after the war by the senior German staff officer, General Gunther Blumentritt, who stated that, quote, the Balkan incident postponed the opening of the Russian campaign by five and a half weeks, while another senior strategist, General Siegfried Westphal, put it at six. Since the Germans were unable to reach Moscow until the autumn, when uh, Russia's rainy season turned into a winter so cold that petrol froze in their tanks, um, and the Wehrmacht stalled outside the city, giving the Russians an opportunity for their counterattack in December, the iron law of unintended consequences had once more acted in Churchill's favour. When a Tory MP criticised Churchill for visiting the front only six days after D-Day, uh, uh, Brendan Bracken, the Ministry of Information and Prime Minister's closest friends, um, gave an uh, impassioned reply in which he said, quote, Neither the honourable and gallant member nor anyone else can persuade the Prime Minister to wrap himself in cotton wool. He is the enemy of flocculence in thought, word and deed. Most humbly do I aver that in years to come, a grateful and affectionate people will say that Winston Churchill was raised to leadership by destiny. Men of destiny have never counted risk. Many times in his life, Churchill's failure to count risk had let him down. His inability to weigh risk and reward had led him to disaster in ways I'll be telling you about um, over the next three years in these lectures. But he... <laughs> never pass up the opportunity for an ad. Um, but he learnt... The key thing is he learnt from each of these mistakes, which is truly the only thing that mattered. Meanwhile, the politicians who carefully weighed out the risks and rewards uh, recommended a path that, if we had followed it, might have led to the extinguishing of freedom on this planet. 
including here in the United States, for centuries to come. If Britain had fallen in 1940, and the Royal Navy, easily the largest navy in the world at that time, had been forced to join the German, Italian and French navies, then the United States Navy could not have done anything to prevent the destruction of the eastern seaboard. Manhattan, for example, would almost certainly have been destroyed by naval shelling. Instead, there was a man who, aged 16, said, I shall be in command of the defences of London and I shall save London and England from disaster. This profound sense of walking with destiny meant that Winston Churchill saved not just London and England from disaster, but ultimately civilization itself. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I've got a whole series of questions here that I'm um, keen to um, answer the easiest of. (laughs) Um, Very good one here. Who was Winston Churchill's role model? Um, He had several role models. The first was William Pitt the Younger, uh, who he read about a lot, including during the war and who um, many of William Pitt the Younger's um, speeches, the cadences, uh, the echoes of them can be heard in, uh, in Churchill's speeches as well. He admired Lloyd George for his wartime leadership as well, but ultimately his role model as a war leader was Georges Clemenceau. Uh, the great war leader of the, the, the Tiger, the great French war leader of the First World War. Um, he knew Clemenceau. He'd met him in the First World War in a very dangerous moment, actually, in 1918 at the time of the great German Spring Offensive. And um, he watched him. And when you read his article about Clemenceau in, um, written in Great Contemporaries, which was published in 1937, Churchill is effectively writing about his own uh, premiership in 1940. It is an extraordinary presage, uh, that essay, of what he was to do in 1940. And, uh, and I, I really do recommend it. It's a wonderful essay in itself, the Clemenceau essay in, in uh, Great uh, Contemporaries. But also it tells us uh, enormous amounts of the way in which Churchill modelled himself um, in the Second World War. Um, whose idea was it to use pleasure gro- boats to help in the evacuation of Dunkirk? Um, that's a very good question as well. The actual um, uh, list of pleasure boats had, had um, been put into operation in 1939. So when the war broke out, you registered your boat, sent it into the Admiralty, uh, expecting that nothing was going to happen. And then um, eight months later... Uh, they commandeered in many cases the uh, the boats, and in some cases um, they allowed the skippers of the boats to take the uh, take the boats over. But it was Churchill's idea to put that uh, to up upgrade um, that list from September 1939, from the 10th of May onwards, to make sure that it would be ready just in case. Um, the man who oversaw the entire operation was, of course, Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsay, um, one of the great uh, uh, naval heroes of, uh, of British history. Um, did His Majesty um, King George ever face the prospect of war against the combined might of Germany and the USSR? Well, Germany and the USSR were 
actually, uh, in a sense, allied. They, Germany was giving uh, huge amounts of oil and grain to the Germans. Um, Soviet Russia was, was giving that to the Germans right the way up until the um, Operation Barbarossa. In fact, as the Germans were going in one direction invading um, Russia, on, at the same time and on the same day, trains from Russia were coming in the other direction, giving, um, giving the Germans oil and grain. Um, but uh, what King George did uh, worry about, which Churchill didn't, was whether or not the Russians were ultimately still a um, an, an enemy and a danger and a threat in 1940. Um, and he actually said to, this is one of the things that I was surprised by when I read uh, the King's Diary in Windsor Castle, he actually said on more than one occasion, um, don't you think that we should be more worried about the Russians than the Germans? Actually, during the Battle of Britain, uh, which seems an extraordinary time for the for the king to be worrying about the Russians. Um, my history professor at Dartmouth College, it's a bit of a bit of a name drop there from whoever it was uh, that wrote this, um, told us that World War Two was essentially won due to the heroics of Churchill and others. By the time the U.S. entered the war, is that so? No, that's not so. We we did a. Churchill did a fantastic thing in um, keeping Britain in the war between the Dunkirk operation in uh, May and June 1940 and Operation Barbarossa 12 months later. It was absolutely central that we should have stayed in the war and kept the, um, and kept the fight going in the, in the West. Um, but um, the war was certainly not won by the time um, the United States entered the, uh, entered the war by any means. And it seems extraordinary that um, such an expensive college should have history professors. Why do you think there is so much interest in Winston Churchill in the United States? What a good question. And the, uh, and I, and the, it, undoubtedly there is, um, not just the fact that we've sold out uh, today, um, but also the warship that the United States has named after Winston Churchill, I think the only non-American ever to have a warship, um, U.S. Navy warship named after him. Um, the numbers of Americans who come to Chartwell every year is, uh, is huge and I think growing. Um, the new movie, uh, Darkest Hour, uh, extremely good movie, by the way, with Gary Oldman, uh, gets all of the history wrong, needless to say, but it doesn't matter, uh, <laughs> to the fact that it, its heart is in the right place uh, and so much better than the, than the rubbishy movies that we've had recently trying to knock Churchill endlessly. Um, I think, uh, therefore, it can be proved that, um, that Americans do still respect and admire and are interested in Winston Churchill. Of course, the acid test really will come this November when my biography is published. Um, but um, the question was not whether, but, but why. And that the answer is, I think, um, because Churchill still speaks to us in terms of the morality of politics... Um, he still explains really everything we need to know about courage, 
not just physical courage, although of course he did uh, uh, exemplify that as well in ways that I'll be I'll be talking about on the nineteenth of April, but also the moral courage that we hope and expect uh, and should demand, and um, and we have as a right to demand from our political leaders. And so when a man, as Churchill did, um, said something because he believed it and continued to say it and did not alter that message um, merely because of opinion polls or focus groups or anything like that, but simply continued to warn against the rise of Adolf Hitler in his case, but, um, but you know, every, every politician has their own age. Um, that is something that is... Admirable down the ages, admirable from the days of ancient Rome to, to the present day. And so I hope that the reason that Americans are still interested in Churchill is that they are still interested in the best. Uh, did Churchill indicate at any time that he was not up to the job as prime minister as he showed to Clementine in Darkest Hour? No. <laughs> Uh, no, seriously, I mean, I don't know how many of you have seen this movie, but uh, it's a great movie. G- Gary Oldman is a fan, is Churchill. I mean, he's, he's, he absolutely, it's not, a, it's not a caricature, it's not a, it is brilliant acting, but also with the prosthetics that he has, he literally does look like uh, Winston Churchill, sound like Winston Churchill. He's got the, he's got the gravamen, he has the uh, necessary humour, he has everything, and it's wonderful. But it's impossible for me not to mention this scene uh, where he, where Churchill goes down into the underground um, uh, and um, is uh, is enthused by the uh, by the people, ordinary working class people who who use the tube to to carry on the fight on, uh, because otherwise, you know, um, he he might want to surrender to Hitler. Um, <laughs> The the um, the people who wrote the book wrote the um, wrote the script, uh, including the, the producer who I was at school with, um, s- make it quite clear, straightforward, that it is a it's a Hollywood way of trying to argue that uh, Churchill's decision to fight on came as a result of the working classes desire to fight on. Ladies and gentlemen, nobody asked the working classes um, in, uh, in May 1940. It was quite simply an act of, um, of tremendous leadership. Churchill, Churchill is a bigger man than having to go down to the tube uh, station and ask um, random people on an underground uh, um, train. It's also completely absurd, in my view, uh, that... Sorry to have a rant about this, but you can imagine it. Um, uh, it's also absurd to think of His Majesty the King visiting Churchill in his bedroom at uh, 10 Downing Street and telling him that he needs to, uh, to consult the people. This did not happen, and as a result, Churchill is, in my view, an even greater man. Um, because the, he wasn't following uh, what, uh, what the people were saying. He was providing leadership to the people who then followed him. It's a, uh, it's a key um, differential, and, it, um, and, and this movie, therefore, um, however fantastic it is and, and, and enjoyable, and I do recommend everybody to go and see it, uh, nonetheless, at its, if its key message is that Churchill was following the people rather than leading them, um, then it's completely wrong.
Why did Churchill support Edward VIII's marriage to Mrs. Simpson when virtually all of the Tory party leadership was against it? Another good question. These are really good questions we're getting uh, uh, this evening. Um, Keep them coming for three years, won't you? (laughs) Um, Well, the answer to that is um, that he liked... Edward VIII. He'd known him all his life. He considered him to be all of Edward's uh, life. He considered him to be a friend, and he never thought that Mrs. Simpson was going to wind up as Queen of England. He thought that there was going to be a... Well, he at least put forward um, the idea of a morganatic marriage, um, which is a European concept. Uh, Franz Ferdinand, um, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, had a morganatic marriage. Admittedly, that's not a great example, Um, but uh, it was actually a happy marriage. Um, But whereby she doesn't become queen, um, she does get a title, such as Duchess of Windsor, and she... Um, therefore is, um, uh, allows him to be happy and the um, crown ultimately goes to the person who holds it at the moment um, through, through the succession. Um, it, was, it was not a runner because the Church of England were totally opposed to it, the establishment was opposed to it, the cabinet was opposed to it, uh, Stanley Baldwin was opposed to it and uh, the royal family were opposed to it. So it simply... Um, wasn't it was a non-runner and Winston Churchill hung on to it for the idea for far too long and it cost him really um, a great deal of political capital which he needed much more at that time to be um, to be spent on warning the world against the Nazis it was a it was a debacle but not one in which he comes out as being, it's actually another, it's another case of him being morally courageous, in fact, because he was shouted down by the House of Commons. Only time it had happened in his career. In fact, the only time that many people had seen it ever happen in the House of Commons. Um, and so it was a case of him putting uh, his, uh, his friendship before his, uh, his own political um, best interests. Was Churchill's reputation mixed prior to May the 10th, 1940, in light of both failures and successes in his earlier pre-1940 years? Very mixed indeed, yes. He had made a series, not just the abdication crisis, but a series of, um, of errors, which I will lovingly go into over the next um, three years. Um, and he was therefore considered by the majority of the Conservative Party to be a... Um, to, to be a huge risk as uh, as Prime Minister in May 1940. Uh, most of them didn't want him, but they just didn't have a better alternative who also wanted the job. I mentioned earlier about Anthony Eden. Um, Anthony Eden was 41 at the time of Munich, so he wasn't really um, considered to be politically ready. Um, most of Churchill's... Um, most of the people who would have been Churchill's uh, rivals were dead by uh, by that stage of 1940. It's a fascinating period, and I uh, and I will be talking about it more. Um, did Churchill know about the attack on Coventry before it happened? No. This is one of the great myths of um, of Churchill. Um, revisionist history. Um, it was been put around by uh, David Irving, um, the former historian, um, <laughs> who, um, who said that um, the ultra-decrypts had been um, 
had been given to Churchill. And Churchill um, knew that Coventry was going to be bombed, but in order to protect the Enigma Code, he decided to do nothing about it and allowed um, the fighter squadrons not to intercept the bombers, and therefore uh, Coventry was destroyed in uh, November 19, uh, 1940. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's not true the decrypt said that there was going to be an attack on a major town in the Midlands. There are dozens of major towns in the Midlands. They simply could not have uh, covered every single one of them with the, uh, with the, with the few fighter planes that they had in uh, that period of 1940. It's one of the great canards. But on a deeper level, would Churchill actually go down or up in your estimation if he had... Um, sent the sent the RAF fighters to intercept, and therefore given the Germans the concept that it's possible that Enigma had been cracked. Oh, if you're fighting a war, and overall it was absolutely essential that the Germans should not find out this, I would not uh, think the less of um, Churchill if he had taken that ruthless decision. But fortunately, uh, he didn't because because uh, Enigma had not been um, so advanced as to be able to tell that it was going to be Coventry. Interesting moral issue there, though. Um, now, I'm not just putting there because I don't want to answer it, uh, and, I'm, and it's not because it's about President Trump. Um, <laughs> it's because, uh, it's because I've, got, I've got one more to answer. Oh. Okay. Just looking for the easiest one. What role did Mrs. Churchill play during uh, World War II? This is an interesting question as well. Um, so well done, everybody. Um, brilliant uh, series of questions. The, um, an important one, but not as important as some of her um, biographers state. Um, the, um, the fact is that she was a fantastic wife to him. She was... Uh, his rock, she gave him uh, extremely good advice, not on you know, strategic issues or, uh, or anything like that, but with regard to people um, and how to play them. She, spotted, she was the first person who spotted that um, Lloyd George was, in her words, Judas Iscariot. Um, and um, she, uh, she bucked him up when he was down. She was a, uh, a, a fantastic... Um, uh, support to her, to um, to him. When people say that she was uh, that he couldn't have won the war without her, um, he they are going far far too far. But nonetheless, overall, um, Clementine Churchill was uh, was one of the good things of history. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming. Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.